Hi, Mage fans. This is Terry Robinson with Mage the Podcast. And today I have not one, but two distinguished guests. And we are going to talk about the upcoming Kickstarter for Technocracy Reloaded. Joining me is soon to be returning guest, Danielle Lozon. And that will make sense because the episode that was going to go out this week was a different interview with Danielle talking about the God Machine Chronicle and Demon of Descent. Look for that in your podcast feeds in a couple of weeks. And also returning friend of the pod, Travis Leg. Danielle, Travis, how are you doing? Hey, I'm doing okay, all things considered. I am wonderful. Thank you for asking. Despite living in an apocalypse, I am absolutely at the top of, of my game. I appreciate that, and I have had a chance to look at the manuscript for Technocracy Reloaded, and that top of your game seems to have come through to the text, and I am very excited for the rest of the world. Uh, so, Technocracy Reloaded is the next entry in the M20 line. What role does it fill? It's a supplement that is devoted completely to the technocracy. It allows for both a technocracy that is an antagonist, but it also gives playable material for Technocracy Chronicles. So if you want to play members of the Technocracy, this is the book for you. It's also five. So if you look yeah. at the numbers <laughs> on the sides of the books, it is five. <laughs> yeah. Just to explain that comment, in the M20 line, each book has a number on its spine with How Do You Do That being one, Book of Secrets being two, Art of Mage being three, Gods and Monsters being four, and Book of the Fallen being labeled Six, which I think was a uh, done intentionally by a scorned former coworker or lover of Satoros Filbricado, because I think every day the Facebook group gets a message from someone who's like, "Man, I just discovered this mage. How can I get book number five? And just like, Ugh. <laughs> so. The technocracy historically started out in first edition as kind of the omnipresent baddies in Mage the Ascension. And in first edition, each faction was very heavily tied to an aspect of the metaphysical trinity. These were not just uh, technomancers, but they were embodiments of stasis. Uh, we're talking in 1E, technocrats used devices to prevent them from entering REM sleep so that way they wouldn't accidentally be creative. And their original nemesis, in addition to mages, were the fae. Where are the the technocracy as of this book coming out like right before what was the right before this book coming out kind of what was the state of the technocracy in mage right before this book came out as everything in m20 brought forward to an understanding of the 21st century brought forward to sort of modern sensibilities uh re-examining re the ideas that were initially presented in mage but if your question is where were they before the before m20 they were the victors apparent of the ascension war and that i think is the core conceit that maybe some people who are just coming to the setting or didn't get involved with the 20th anniversary edition books quite yet who are now coming to it with technocracy reloaded that's the core conceit they're going to find challenged in technocracy reloaded is that they are not in fact uh the winners of the ascension war in fact i, I think i saw it kind of eloquently stated by someone in in a conversation on Facebook, the war is over. We all lost. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, I was literally about to say, when, when you're at war for an ascension, honestly, we're all going to be losers. In revised continuity, it starts with something called the Dimensional Anomaly. A fellow by the name of Xerxes Jones ignites this spirit nuke in the Well of Oblivion within the fiction that was indicated that the idea was, well, when Garul woke up during World War II, a whole bunch of Nefandi lost power. What happens if we wake up 
another Malfian, and maybe the Nefandi will get even weaker. And instead of that happening, all heck breaks loose. That coincides with the week of nightmares. I celebrated that with a barbecue last year. That was a lot of fun. We roasted a uh, little antediluvian weenies. That was... Uh, I'm a- <laughs> So that was that was a lot of fun. In addition to that, the dimensional anomaly raised this giant barrier that made the gauntlet even harder to cross. The Umbra was cut off from most mages. The game kind of became much more locally focused. The masters were gone. Your characters could be more powerful. At the same time, the technocracy really stepped up the purge of reality deviants. In Revised, um, I, I think this was done kind of just to simplify the setting, but a lot of crafts and other groups were quite simply wiped out or were forced to dis- to join with a tradition to survive. On the technocracy side, the technocrats lost contact with control, which since the earliest supplements of the game was kind of this entity that dictated what happened from afar. Special Projects Division, which was the Pentax tainted group in the syndicate, also disappeared and no one was quite sure why. And at least in the fan community, there was an idea that there was a brewing war between the New World Order and the syndicate, that this group dedicated to controlling all information, this group dedicated to controlling all financial resources were kind of coming to a head. But then we get Technocracy Reloaded, and it is very clear that the technocrats have not won. To you, what what happened? What prevented them from sealing the deal and really running all of reality? So my perspective is on this. For, for multiple reasons, the technocracy has always been a flawed entity. They think they know what they're doing. They think they know what's best. You know, they have all this kind of like boots on the ground. They have lots of lines and rules and regulations all towards this common goal. But in reality, their grasp on what they're doing is very tenuous. You know, they, they do magic. They call it... <laughs> They call it whatever they want to call it, but they're they're no different from the rest of the magic users. And because of that, they are inherently flawed. And so the things they try to do cause as many problems as anybody else. And so I think part of it is, is to steal a phrase from a different mage game, their hubris got the better of them. I would concur with that. But also, I think one of the perspectives that we try to tackle it from is the idea that at surface glance... You look at the 21st century and you think it's technocratic dream, right? But if you start to look at it kind of like the technocracy is a monolith from a distance, but when you get close, you start to see the cracks. The world is a technocratic victory from a distance, but when you get close, you start to see that really what has happened is it's much akin to giving a chimpanzee a machine gun. Uh, The technocracy has given a lot of tools to the sleepers and and then turned their back for half a second going, oh, we did all right here. And they turn around and when they look back over it, they're like, what do you mean you're you're now using these uh, tools of media control to push anti-scientific agendas? What do you mean you're using quote unquote reason to push an anti-vaxxer belief? What do you mean you're using mass propaganda to put forth a reality show host as a president, as a world leader? You know, how did you get the plot so wrong? And that's kind of the point where the technocracy is approaching the sleepers right now. They are looking at at these tools that they have crafted or that they have guided now being horrendously misused by people who don't understand them to their mindset. And so it's very much a loss and it creates an interesting enemy for the technocracy because you can't punch stupid. (laughs) Except maybe in werewolf. I imagine that there's a, there's a high umbral realm where there's a spirit of stupid you can beat up, but I imagine it's very large and very potent. True. I want to play that game now. (laughs) (laughs) 
Umbral Raiders searching out stupid so we yeah. can punch it. We're playing a World of Darkness game. It's called Developer The Wish Fulfillment. If you'd like to be interested, yeah, we'll be doing that. And that's an interesting way of putting it because in previous editions of Mage, you had the Virtual Adepts and the Sons of Ether. The Virtual Adepts are like, we need to get as much technology into the hands of the sleepers as possible. Look at all the great things they've done. And the technocracy said, whoa, 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 slow that down. And it's interesting that even the tools the technocracy gave that it thought it would be able to maintain control of or that people would be able to use wisely have still backfired. So it's a case where the timetable of technology has moved forward, but the timetable of ascension or the timetable of ethics and morals has in no way advanced. You know, that's actually a, an interesting point that I'm going to derail our conversation momentarily to to make my own point about, which is just in general, the way we think about technological advances in general, where we think, oh, man, we're, we're advancing technology. And that means we are, you know, advancing civilization and the 21st century uh, advanced civilization. But really what we are doing is we're just advancing technologies, civilization as a concept, as a as a you know, morality, ethics, social mores, all those things, they have not been advancing. And not only have they not been advancing, but I could make arguments that we have been regressing in civilization, the more technology that we have, right? Because like you say, we can't punch stupid. But you know, you know, there was a time period when well before technology, when if somebody who was your elder or your, you know, respected human, told you this is the way things work you trusted them and you listened to their advice and now when we have you know all of the world's information at our fingertips when a trusted body like the cdc tells you to vaccinate your children there's a, a thousand people screaming no my baby got sick and so nobody should do this and it's socially speaking a regression of trusted authority and what makes a trusted authority Right. Like usually people got in that position in civilization through action and deed, which everybody could see because it was very localized, small community thing. So advancing technology like that, that's kind of that thought, right, where it's like technocracy is so focused on advancing technology and giving people the tools to to become, you know, higher, better selves. And really, they're just missing the point, which is that you must bring humanity up to the level of technology. You can't just throw high technology at humanity. Right. Peppering the tools and assuming that the enlightenment is going to accompany them. I'm a big fan of Michio Kaku. I love listening to that man talk. And he talks about, I can't remember off the top of my head, the, the civilization scale. Oh, like the Kardashev scale? Yes, thank you. And so like right now we are, as a planet, we are right at the cusp of becoming a stage one civilization where we have global communication, global connection, global ability to manipulate our sphere and our influence. And though we are technologically on that cusp, it's creating a lot of noise that in the real world humanity is not dealing well with because we are trying to reconcile the fact that I have a closer personal relationship, for example, with Danielle, who is several states away from me than I do with the person who lives next door to me because of the technology that we have. So yes. these are these are things that in the real world we're having a, a weird time reconciling. You add to that then the fantastical lens of the technocracy where they're the ones who ostensibly have shepherded these tools into play. And one could argue 
you know, they assumed that the Enlightenment would either rise to meet the technology or just didn't bake in those controls morally. You know, it's the same thing with the technocracy's position on climate change. Prior to M20, you any World of Darkness fan would look at it and go, well, the technocracy's probably happy with how things are going because it's their tools that brought us here. But in Technocracy Reloaded, we really look at, like, how do we reconcile this organization whose tools have brought us here also being perfectly well aware because the science dictates that this is the existential threat humanity faces and we did a lot of work trying to figure out how to reconcile that but my favorite solution as often is the case with technocracy involved throwing hit marks at it (laughs) (laughs) sorry (laughs) i thought you were going somewhere else and then you were like And just to explain what the Kardashev scale is, uh, there was a Soviet astronomer, uh, Nikolai Kardashev, in 1964, proposed that they were scales of civilization, that a type one civilization could take and use all the energy available to a planet. A type two could take all of it available from a star system. And a type three could gather everything in a galaxy. An example of a complete type two would be the Copernicus Research Station, the COP, which is a Dyson sphere which surrounds a star that collects everything. So in the world of darkness, we do have a place where that happens. But it's kind of interesting because the way both of you have presented it is the antagonist is humanity writ large. You haven't mentioned the Nephon you haven't mentioned Pentax. I mean, they're there too. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, to my mind, those are symptoms of the pro- of of the problem. Mm-hmm. The problem is human ignorance. I mean, yes and no, right? Because yes, the true problem with you know, if if we want to work towards human enlightenment, right? If our stated goal is to bring literally everyone up to a state of enlightenment then your true conflict of doing that is the medium with which you're working, right? I must try to get all of these sentient and sapient and free-willed individuals to do what I want them to do. And that is in itself a huge conflict. But then also the technocracy is their own worst enemy because amongst them, they can't necessarily agree how to go about this the best way. They cannot necessarily agree on things. And even when they do agree on things, then they fall into this, aha, we have the best way. And now we're not open to any other suggestions or constructive criticism. And so instead of allowing things to happen naturally or working through problems and troubleshooting, they just kind of continuously try to brute force their way through making this thing happen. Right. You're not enlightened enough, so I'll make you enlightened with sleep teachers and and propaganda or through mind procedures or through just giving you the information I think you should have. And then when you do that, if you're if you're spoon feeding someone information, you can't spoon feed enlightenment, first of all, but also the technocracy, despite its maybe claims and beliefs, doesn't have the resources to spoon feed all of the masses, all of the things all of the time. So now you have things like people who are a little more susceptible to buying anecdotal evidence over the proven science. And my kid got autistic after they took a flu shot. So now you have an anti-vaxxer movement, you know, and things like that, you know. And in that sense, right, you know, it, it is the constant like, oh, well, we can't do everything for the masses all the time. So we'll just terranorm your area. Like once that's done, we'll we'll see how how you 
rise up, right? And it just, it's not happening. But then we also do end up with, at the same time, oh, we have this medium that we're working with, which is a difficult medium. And it's something that, you know, this is the the project. And then we have these, all these external factors like reality deviants. We have Nefandi. We have the tradition mages. We have, we have extraterrestrial beings popping into the world. We have all these other things that like, we are literally the only ones equipped to deal with. And right. so, <laughs> and so that the other, you know, the other side of it is, is that this is a difficult medium and it won't just do what we want it to do. And also we keep having to pause our meticulous work so that we can deal with all this other bullshit that exists. So the biggest enemy is the technocracy itself. <laughs> And two quick things. One, you mentioned terranorming. What is that? Also, I'm so glad that you brought the Kalawan and the Zigrugular into M20, two of my favorite (laughs) entities, to the point where if I try and type zigzag in my phone, it will autocorrect to Zigrugular zag, (laughs) which pleases me to no end. So terranorming is essentially, it is making advanced technology the norm writ large. So it happens in cities, it happens in communities, it happens in nations, but it's essentially desensitizing the masses to the technocracy's high-tech existence. Normalizing the acceptable reality to within acceptable technocratic parameters. Right. And this was kind of presented previously that periodically the traditions and the technocracy would get into battles of reality zones, but technocracy reloaded kind of gives, I'm not going to say rules because we don't get systems for it, but we do get guidelines. The, the idea is that, well, we can't force everyone to think a thing, but we can encourage charities, for instance, uh, that promote the distribution of prostheses that we think are going to help advance it or pushing startups that are developing promising technologies that we like and sometimes force to stop people that we're opposing. In M20, the themes that are given, in, despite the fact that it is the world of darkness, are hope and transformation, that each tradition has kind of gotten a second wind of some sort, and that each of them faces a question they have to deal with if they're going to make their way in the 21st century. What are kind of the themes that you see the technocracy uh, focusing on, or a technocracy game focusing on, as kind of presented in this book? I'm going to talk about corruption and extremity because I think that those like power and progress are the veneer of the story, right? They're the way they're where you start in the story where your characters have power and are working towards progress, right? But the the core of the game, at least in my opinion, if I were going to be running a technocracy game, which, you know, maybe I will, is that you're slowly realizing that you're a part of an extremely corrupt and extremely like far, I guess, left or far right, whatever you want to call it. You are a extremist group who is extremely corrupt and either coming to terms with that or bucking the system or trying to work within the limitations that that kind of system provides for you. When you say corruption, I I think of that in the classical sense of like nefondic infiltration, but is that what corruption means here or is it a, a different description? Yes and no, right? So you can absolutely run with the Nefandi have, you know, it infiltrated at the top tier and are running the technocracy and you find that out and now what the fuck do you do? Like that's absolutely a storyline and you can totally go with it. But you know what also is a storyline is we think we're doing the right thing and oh shit, we're the baddies. We're literally murdering people or, you know, just clear cutting the world to get what we want and it is awful. 
And then you say, oh, how do we deal with that? There's this moral quandary of, I I still believe in the stated goal, but the methods that that I realize that we're using are just, oh my God. So, you know, how do you reconcile that? And it also seems to be one of those cases with extremity that we call it the Ascension War. The the victor gets reality. And in that kind of frame, anything becomes justifiable if you literally think failing in this is going to spell the downfall or extinction of humanity. Like, it's one yes. of those cases where there is a huge difference between 99% of humans dying and 100% of humans dying. One is extinction. There's nothing after that. So if they have to kill 99% to preserve the one forever, they will. Well, and yeah, and not only that, but, you know, if I have to kill 99% of humanity to ensure that some humanity survives, then that's worth it to me. But also now, now that I have one reality, I can just make sure that there is a good outcome on the other end. I have control over it now, so mm-hmm. I can just ensure that we'll just bring all those people back. <laughs> or something. And again, praise for the book. One of the things the book does an, a, a, an extremely good job is is saying, this is the group. These are the stories you can play with them. And this is what your campaign or quest or whatever you want to call it is going to look like. And one of the things that came out to me was the idea that for the longest time, the technocracy had ideals. They had the precepts of Damien, which is one of the few things all technocrats believe in, these six basic principles. But you have to operationalize that. You have to say, what are we actually going to achieve? How are we going to measure that metric? And at some point, when you optimize too thoroughly for the metric, you lose view of what the actual intent is. Keep reality safe became, well, we need to reduce the number of reality deviants, which became genocide against everything that's not a technocrat. Is that necessarily the best way to accomplish it? Probably not, because it chews up a lot of resources. But in the process of trying to operationalize a, a paradigm or a worldview, things get super messy. And that is very much a recurring theme that I got in this book was stepping back from that. That, for instance, Iteration X wanted to make humans as efficient as possible. And the easiest way to do that is to say, well, machines are super efficient. Let's turn people into machines. And this book takes mm-hmm. a step back from that and saying, well, what can we what can we learn to improve human performance without turning everyone literally into a robot? So uh, it, the book does a great job of operationalizing those themes and saying, this is literally how how you put it into a into a chronicle in a way that previous books maybe didn't. Yeah, that was uh, definitely part of the mission statement. But also to kind of piggyback off of what Danielle was saying about corruption through that lens, you know, the idea that these ideals get polluted in the process of attempting to achieve them because you start to break them down, and then you start to get into, you know, one of the themes that runs through all of Mage and always has is at the mage level, at the level of the singular will worker, you have a vision for reality that is so strong that you can impose it on the reality of others. And so when you have people that are that opinionated, whether or not they're working for a a common stated goal, the road to how to get there can be very fractured. and, And the corruption in pursuing that goal you start getting into some of the sort of like sub factions within the technocracy. Things like you have, you know, you bring up Iteration X and the machines. You also have, you know, the Atomite. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, this this whole group of technocrats that believe that if you're not a traditionally born human, you are somehow lesser. You're not quite capable of really being the one to drive the technocracy's goals home. You are you are a second class citizen to their mind. <laughs> they, they to me are the turfs of the technocracy. Kind of. <laughs> or, 
or at least I'm like, yeah. Oh, <laughs> you're like, sure. Yeah. You look like a human and act like a human and have once hopes and dreams, but you didn't get there the same way as the rest of us. So you don't count. And just seeing that the technocratic belief structure has places where those make absolute sense to form and to spring up. I'm not saying that I, if I were transplanted into this mystical world of, of mage 20, I'm not saying I would agree with the Adamites, but I could understand how they got to that conclusion, right? Like you can map how they get to that conclusion. You, know, you can look at a bigot and often see how they get to where they got. <laughs> you know, doesn't doesn't mean they're right. Yeah, they're right, but you can see like, oh, I see where your reason failed, or I see where you're you got damaged in a way that this led to I, that. I can your your cognitive dissonance is showing. Right, exactly, and the fact that those exist in the technocracy because at the end of the day, they are a col- a collection of people who are strong willed, and that's where the power and the progress kind kind of comes in. They have pushed things so far, and they have demonstrable, you know, they can point to things and say, these are our works. This is proof that we're right. You can go inside your own dwelling and use the bathroom that has running water in it and wash your hands with heated water and, oh yeah, not get eaten by a freaking dragon because we took care of those problems for you. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know? So they have this, this demonstrable result. And that's very compelling and very seducing for someone who is based on ostensibly the scientific method, right? (laughs) We've done so much good so far. So obviously whatever we're doing next also has to be good, even if you don't see it. And even if you can't hear it over the sound of the screams of of those we have to subdue in the process. Mm -hmm. Uh, You made mention to the Adamites, which is a faction within the group that only wants uh, regular born and bred uh, technocrats to be part of it. This book introduces a number of interesting groups and political factions and ideas, or at least expands on ones that existed before, like you have New Avalon or the Friends of Courage or the Cassandra Complex. Best name. Are there <laughs> are there any groups that you introduce or new little factions that you particularly liked? Even the number of methodologies within each convention has increased. Did you have a favorite? Or is there one that you're like, hey, I think players will be will find this interesting? I have a favorite plot element. It's not so much like a particular faction, but I have I, there's an idea that we that we introduce and in reloaded that I'm just absolutely in love with, which is the in chapter eight, the Ascension Truce. That's for me. That's like the that that was the most fun thing to explore for me working on on a book full of things that I am absolutely in love with. I'm also a big fan of in. The unit where we're talking about operations around the globe, there are certain cross-conventional initiatives that are introduced. And the the Iteration X Progenitor initiative in uh, South America is also a personal favorite of mine. Because I I really do like the idea of we're going to stop deforesting by throwing hit marks at it. Yeah. (laughs) So what was the first thing that you mentioned, the Ascension? Ascension Truths. Okay. What is that? It's one of the... the unit eight of the book, we talk about some possible metaplot options and places you can take the metaplot because it's setting, it's, you know, metaplot neutral effectively, like M20 is. We dial in on a few things like, well, what if the union really is being run by the Nefandi? What if the union really has won? And the Ascension Truce is one of those options where the technocracy develops enough wherewithal at an operational level 
to say this isn't working and our enemies aren't the tradition mages or the crafts our enemies are the ignorance that we have created through our own hubris so we better sit down with the rest of the people who have their shit together enough to be rational like probably not going to break bread with the nefandi probably not going to bring the marauders in on this but <laughs> talking with the ascension war factions that have enough cognitive command to reason with and saying okay how do we fix this and as you say, the, the last section of the book is a whole bunch of metaplot options. This stays metaplot agnostic, but also it is not that skim milk version of the metaplot that's kind of presented in M20 where it's like, well, four things could happen and we have three sentences to describe each end. This does give give a good bit more detail and mm-hmm. and each one is fascinating and each one you have enough information to actually run with. So so thank you for providing that. The book is strewn with, with sidebars and notes and it even goes so far as to provide areas where, hey, this is what we said in the past. This is also something else that we said in the past. They don't agree. Mm-hmm. Here are some options you can take on how you want to resolve that. So it doesn't quite yeah. tell the storyteller what to do, but at the same time, it gives them a toolbox to say, well, if you want to run with this, here's how. Well, and I think that that was one of the mission statements going into Technocracy Reloaded was this is the book where we're going to resolve as much as we can and provide tools as much as we can for the storytellers to resolve every dangling meta plot thread presented in 29 years of mage. <laughs> you know? Right. And right. the lion's share of that work was done before Danielle and I even got to the book. I mean, a lot yes. of that was Satiro's having the, the seeds at the very least planted for all of that this whole time. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Um, yeah. there were a couple of things we got to sort of ratchet down and define ourselves, which is super cool. But mm-hmm. a lot of that stuff was, was already uh, all credit to uh, Satiro's vision for that. So you asked us what our favorite is of the multiple cross convention slash interconvention initiatives and things going on. And honestly don't have like a favorite favorite, but I had the pleasure of writing up the several of the conventions myself before I was asked to do development work on this book. So I wrote probably my favorite, which are iteration X, the progenitors and the void engineers. And I used to be, And I guess I still am, even though I don't practice anymore, a neuroscientist. So I used to work in hypothalamic research in neuroscience labs, specifically determining like obesity and feeding, eating and feeding disorders. The hypothalamus, it controls your your baser instincts. So it, it makes sure you do things like breathe and eat. It also helps you run away when you're scared, things like that. Anyway, I I have a lot of science background of real like neuroscience, gene splicing, creating genetic models of animals and things like that. So writing up the progenitors was super fun. And (laughs) within the convention, there's all these initiatives, which I came up with, some of which were there already and some of which I was like, man, this is something the progenitors would do. And I know about this stuff, so I'm going to write about it. That was fun. And I enjoyed it. And and the the progenitors are interesting because almost all of the conventions in this book are in some way refocused. Like we talked earlier, (laughs) the Iteration X is now about perfecting humans, not turning humans into machines. And the progenitors kind of go from being this group that's like, uh, screw humanity, we can vat breed something better, to a group that's a little more focused on humanity as a whole of how, how can we lift everyone up. Historically, there was this idea that there was going to be a war between the New World Order and the Syndicate. Do we get that in this book? 
think so. I mean, I think I'm... we get I think we get all of the tools that you would need if you wanted to explore it, right? right. The Friends of Courage are there. Uh, and that was, I think, one of the driving ideas behind that was the Friends of Courage slash Project Invictus slash uh, Special Projects Division. I think that's where that concept cro- crept up from, in particularly in the fan community. I think what we do is we set the stage for you to make that as central or as non-existent as you like. Because you can literally, there are options there to have special projects division be not there. There are options to have them still be functioning and there are options to have them never have existed. That's all presented as tools that you can use to determine which way you want to go with it. And you even present the like coming of age comedy option of special projects division has disappeared, but no one knows this and we need to cover for them. So we need to get into this X rated movie by having three children on their shoulders in a trench coat acting like special projects division. Uh, you, you introduce a group that kind of makes it look like SPD still exists. Yeah. They're trying to like, cover for them while yep. they're not here. Like, they're, they're Han Solo at the, at the, at the controls in yeah. Star Wars. You look like, a little short. Fine here. Yeah. Situation normal. Yeah. And I think one of the most terrifying options that you present is the idea of SPD is gone, but their checks are still going through. What the dink? Right. And I'm like, yes, this is, <laughs> this is the maids that captivated me as, as a teenager reading it the first time. So yeah, you present an absolute boatload of new groups. This was one of the strengths, I think, of M20. In some of the older editions of Mage, there was just this flowering of groups where you would get a one or two sentence uh, encapsulation of who may be there. M20 reintroduced that. And this book goes much further in giving you paragraphs to work with. It doesn't give you the whole book, mm-hmm. but it generally gives you the first page or the first chapter. And you can, and, yeah. and you can certainly run with it. Uh, one of the things the book also tries to do is over editions, how the technocracy actually operates kind of got sprawling, where different groups had different levels and different terms for everything. Uh, What does the organization of the technocracy look like now? Like, what do the ranks kind of look like? You know, there's definitely a a ranking system that, that fits across the entire technocracy, but every convention calls their levels something different. If you're, you know, Iteration X, you're yeah, you're yeah. a controller, but if you're a void engineer, you're a marine, right? Like they still have different terms, but the ranking system is the same. And that's in, you know, the core M20 book has kind of a list of all the different ranks and what each convention calls them. But there are, you know, it, the syndicate does not have a secret sixth rank, <laughs> something along those lines, right? right. It's, it's, it's all been made uniform. And I think it's pretty safe to say, given the amount of cross-referencing that we were doing over that uh, mythical six weeks of putting this book together, that Herculean effort was expended to ensure that we are expanding and not contradicting. And when we are contradicting, we are doing so very intentionally, very upfront, and as an option of saying, if you want to do this this way, this is how you... You know, this is where it's about resolving contradictions, not introducing more. To clarify, this whole book was not done in six weeks, just no. your <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> our, our finishing pass, I guess you could say. 
so the two of you are listed as writers and developers for this, um, but I don't think it, you were necessarily involved from the beginning, and you took over a portion of the writing from Satoros Filbricato, who's been largely responsible for a lot of the uh, the text of the M20 line, approaching a million words. What's it like uh, taking on a development project midstream? You know, this isn't the first time I've taken somebody else's book and taken it to the finish line, right? That's actually a, a thing that people don't talk about a whole often, but sometimes book just struggles at some point during development. You know, something catches on fire. And for whatever reason, a developer cannot finish the project. Either they hit a roadblock of, you know, mental block. Like sometimes you're looking at something, it feels really big and you don't know where to get started, right? And everything feels like it's a problem and you're like, oh God, it all sucks. What do I do? Uh, it's sometimes it's a personal problem, right? Like I literally cannot be working on this right now because my my mom is dying mm-hmm. or whatever, right? Or I am right. dying, you know, or sometimes it's just I'm doing it, but it's taking too long, mm-hmm. right? Like I, I know what to do, but I can't do it. There's, there's all sorts of reasons why things will fall by the wayside. And then, you know, the best thing to do is to hand it to someone else and ask them to clean it up and get it moving so that it can get to the finish line. And I've done that for several projects. And it's it's so interesting to me because it's almost always I come in and somebody has told me this apocalyptic amount of work that needs to be done. Oh, the whole thing needs to be rewritten. Or, oh, it's 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 such a state of disrepair. I'm never going to get it. And I, I literally I look at it and I'm like, yeah, this will take me like a week or two. And they're just like, what? I don't understand. And, <laughs> and it's right. so interesting whenever things come to me that way because like the fact that you know you know, Travis and I will talk about it took four weeks six weeks it, it was a flurry of activity but honestly the book was in a really good shape before we started working on it and yeah it would have taken one person a couple of months of dedicated work to get that done but between the two of us and fresh eyes and just we know what to do Right. And where for Phil, I think he was hitting like a burnout stage of he needed to step away from everything for his own personal reasons. And it was like, I just can't finish this. And we're like, yeah, but we can. So it's always interesting to carry a book to the finish line just because it's always different to work on something after it's already been worked on by someone else because every developer has a different voice. And so trying to preserve Phil's voice in the book as opposed to my own or Travis's voice. You know, if you look at books I've developed myself or Travis's developed, they're going to look very different from this book. The one place where I felt that I had the best advantage coming in on this project was that I was a huge Mage the Ascension fanboy from about 1994 or so. And I had consumed so much of of Satyros' work that... I was pretty sure, if nothing else, I could do a very convincing aping of it. (laughs) And I think think you did, which is, you know, that was one of those things that, you know, I was like, I, like, when I was reading his voice, I'm like, oh, no, I'm never going to be able to write like this. I think this man has such a body of knowledge on this subject, right? Mage, the Ascension is... You know, all of Mage the Ascension is floating around in Phil Bricotta's head, and he is just vomiting it forth in such an, an easygoing manner, where if I were to try to mimic that, I would just be like, deer in a headlights, like, there's something about reality, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I was terrified of it until I had sent him some of the stuff that I had 
written um because there were a couple of chapters where there was a much more like raw writing had not been done yet right mm-hmm. and so i kind of started with that stuff and when i sent it to him and he and he was like you really nailed the voice then i was like okay now i can just yeah. cruise just and start and do yep. but I, I literally considered him one of my heroes in this industry so knowing the possibility that i might f that up he was i knew he was happy with the quality of the work that I was putting out there, it became much more. Then I just went nuts and, and ran roughshod over it. And now I look forward to him yelling at me like, you did what? <laughs> <laughs> uh, nope. He won't do that either. No. That's the good thing about Phil is that as, as strong as his voice is, he's also a great collaborator. So, And he was very involved in the, in the process of getting it buttoned up. But, yep. you know, it was also parallel at the same time working on Book of the Fallen and so much other stuff going mm-hmm. on. So, yeah. Oh, yeah. There's so much going on. So one of the interesting things that comes through on here is some of the previous stuff in Mage hasn't necessarily aged well. My favorite example is, I think it is in uh, possibly Project Twilight or possibly the original Hunters Hunted. There is a one-point flaw, female. But one of the interesting things that comes through in this text is very much not only is the technocracy modernized from a bureaucratic sense, but also in a worldview sense. The technocracy now seems to be the most progressive entity in the world of darkness. Is that the case now? And do you consider that to be uh, kind of the standard for the game? The listeners can't see me face palming <laughs> about that flaw. It's like poor eyesight needing glasses as being a flaw. Like it is literally the dumbest so beyond that you know one of the things i think about specifically about the technocracy and about are they progressive and are they the most progressive and you know this kind of thing and easily i can say yes and the reason being that part of their stated goal is this enlightenment and this you know ascension and the enlightened ruling over the unenlightened and you know whatever but part of enlightenment is letting go of the standard trappings that we utilize to 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 create boxes around things. Part of ascending into under, you know, a shared reality of you know, utopian dream is an egalitarian sensibility that can't be predicated on who you love, what you look like, how you were born, what you sound like, any kind of physical disabilities, anything like that. And so those things on the surface seem like no-brainers, right? Like, of course we don't care what your gender is because, like, that's not the point of any of this. Mm -hmm. Of course we don't care if you have a disability because, again, that's not the point of it. Can you do this thing? Yes? Cool. That's all we care about. And, you know, in a more grotesque mindset mindset also is part of dehumanizing people is not caring about what they are or look Mm -hmm. like also. And so, you know, there's this kind of the technocracy is progressive. They don't care what gender you are. They don't care, you know, what your sexuality is. They don't care what color you are. They also just treat you like a serial number. So, I mean, there's that. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Right. To sort of piggyback on that, too, like it's wonderful from a social justice perspective, right? Because it's a place where you, where each can rise to their own potential. But it also fits very well with the sociopathic nature of the technocracy, which is you are a tool we will utilize to your best potential. 
the specifics of that tool matter little to us. This is often a thing that maybe it's the most fantastical element of the technocracy in a sense that they have the wherewithal to realize that. Think of how much could be accomplished in the really real world if the people who, the manipulators, the people who want to, you know, amass and power and control, if they could just come to that conclusion that, oh, maybe if we stop, you know, we could really Mm -hmm. use people to their best advantage. The technocracy has come to that level of enlightenment for good and for ill. There are those factions within the technocracy that don't. There's still ignorance there, you know. Yeah. Still atomites. My way of thinking about it, going through it, was the idea that there is nothing against which they discriminate, assuming that it is not germane to their mission. But at the same time, there is also nothing that they celebrate. There, there, <laughs> there, there probably isn't going to be an LGBTQIA group within the technocracy because we don't care about that. Um, no. Who cares if you're in a plural relationship? Who you love is unimportant to us. And until you get to literally a level T3, we don't even recognize marriage. Um, right. So. <laughs> <laughs> right. Like, who cares who you love? Nobody gets married. It's not that you can't get married specifically. It's that no, nobody can. Sorry. Yeah. Like, it is like, yeah, look, it is progressive in a game design standpoint, right? It is a, but it, we also are able to put that kind of, you know, corrupt and, and kind of extremist lens on when the technocracy says we literally don't care. And it's like, yeah, because you're literally just a meat suit to them. And you, your meat suit could be anything and it doesn't matter. Two things I want to just touch on real quick. I think that that's something that the narrative builds a bit of a sliding scale into. Yes. Right. So if you want to tell a story where that focuses on someone who maybe in modern American society is not finding the acceptance that they deserve, finding it through the union, that can be your story, right? Mm-hmm. But you can also play the other side of that coin where you are just that serial number. And those can coexist and they don't create the contradiction that one might it might appear to. But also I just want to touch on because it's very present in my mind right now. Very interesting to me how examining the function and the presentation of marriage and the family in an institution or in a society in game design has come up on a couple things I've worked on recently. And it's just, it seems like you can learn an awful lot about that society by the way it processes how people love one another and how they go about their daily lives. And I'm very glad to see that we got a chance to dive into that in technocracy because there's a not insignificant word count sort of devoted to the technocratic family and the technocratic Mm -hmm. marriage and the technocratic divorce and the technocratic, (laughs) what we consider to be sort of the quote unquote normal life of a technocrat. I think if you really want to get to the soul of what being a technocrat is, that section of that chapter is really cool insight. We also get a new game term, babies born in technocracy, prodigies. You know, Travis, you just brought up something that's really interesting to me that is germane to the conversation, but has nothing to do with technocracy or mage in specific, which is in general, most game design likes to assume that you don't have a family, or if you do have a family, it is somewhere else doing something else and mostly uninvolved with you, either dead because it's convenient for story or you don't have a wife, you don't have children, you have parents who are back home, you know, not really caring what you're doing, right? And and not just, you know, adventure games, but all games. You know, I think to myself of 
ever, have I ever made a character in a game, a World of Darkness game or any other for that matter, that was intricately tied to an immediate family, a wife, a, a, a husband, a child, anything? And it, the answer is mostly no. I have had characters get married in games, like meet the love of their life, get married, but I've never started them as part of a family. And it's just a very interesting to me that we, that our fantasy world is having zero trappings, which is antithetical to human nature. Travis brings up something interesting. The game also does something that I haven't seen in other World of Darkness books, which gives an entire vocabulary parlance and framework to go to this almost, uh, sorry for invoking another game, Blades in the Dark level of this is the mission, then we have downtime. These are the kind of complications that you can do in almost a very fundamental way. One of the things this book excels at is giving tools to storytellers on how to tell the actual darn story from like a structural dimension. And that is something I didn't realize Mage needed until I saw it. Well, right. Yeah. I mean, one of the things I think I struggle with with Mage is what kind of stories do you tell and how do you tell those stories? And so I think that having that here, especially in technocracy where people are going to be looking for the technocracy, maybe uh, as an antagonist book. And so people who are more inclined to be storytellers are going to be reading the book already anyway. And so having that there to present like, how do we tell stories in mage? I'm just going to, I'll confess, I used to never read storytelling chapters in books for a very long time. I felt like, oh, I know how to tell stories. I don't need your storytelling chapter. And then books started making good storytelling chapters that weren't just here's how to tell a story, but here's how to tell this story. And I was like, oh, oh, no, these are important. It's a very far cry from this is... How, what a role-playing game is. Technocracy Reloaded assumes you know what a role-playing game is, and it assumes you know what mage is. Right. So it's going to give you this per, this particular approach to it, and it's going to give you things like your your lexicon in such a way that you can literally imagine the alphabet soup being shot back and forth between the members of a, of a amalgam as they're figuring out what they need to do for the day. And it can become kind of that casual conversation, not to like you know, draw a very, very obvious parallel, but you look at like <laughs> the end scene of Men in Black where, you know, they're talking about getting, you know, the new agent has been introduced and uh, Jay is talking with her about getting tickets for some visiting dignitary because, oh, Dennis Rodman's from that planet, so on and so forth. But that mm-hmm. level of like, you know, you can make the scene of grabbing the coffee and the hot dog in the morning interesting because you've got these lexicon, you can tie that into the ongoing story. You can look at what's happening with technocrats between blowing up tradition mages and blowing themselves up in laboratories. There's all this connective tissue that's presented in a way that you can touch base on that everyday life, if that makes sense. And that lexicon is impressively large. You thought Lermuz was was interesting, potentially talented magic music reality deviant, APT murd, I thought, or a pit murd. I clapped while I was on my treadmill reading this. Um, and I can't remember what the term of art that is used for umbral entities and ghosts, but they're... Oh, it, oh it's... Um, oh, this was what is a, a J-mard, a juxtapositional manifestation pre-consciousness, um, yes, i.e. Ghosts. ghosts. I'm like, yes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> The lexicon. That's, that's how you can tell someone's a mage player when they're like, oh man, this has a great lexicon. <laughs> 
One thing that struck me through is one, you do this region by region walk through the world, giving us a unified vision of what the technocracy looks like everywhere. But in one case, you single out the United States as being this kind of uh, font of bigotry and a failed technocratic project. And and similar analogs aren't mentioned uh, of other countries that maybe are struggling with reactionary forces in them. Uh, why just comment on the U.S.? It's home. Okay. Yeah. I mean, so, so the simple answer is, well, we live here. And so it's easy to talk about the place where we live. The, the bigger, longer answer is it's really hard for me, a white woman, to want to criticize the whatever's going on in China or Nigeria. If I want to criticize South Africa, like I really would ask somebody who's from there to do that instead. And I'm not. So I want to be a little more careful about how we present those things. You know, we don't present any nation in a glowing light of, well, this is just the best place in the world to live. Um, like it's, We don't do that. And, you know, we definitely call out places like the UK and some other nations that have some similar problems. But yeah, I mean, for lack of a better, you know, answer is, is that we're most intimately familiar with the atrocities that are being perpetrated in our own country. Just to go one further, or add a bit to that. We also have the distinction, the US has the distinction of being one of the most nationalist and propagandist nations pretty much from its inception. You ask most Americans, and they believe we are leading the league in just about any measurable metric, when demonstrably that is false. (laughs) We're like number 37 in healthcare. We're like number 40. You know, there was a whole monologue that I want to say Jeff Bridges, but it wasn't. Jeff Daniels, yeah, the opening monologue from Newsroom about how America is... Not never been the best at anything. And that's a place where we are uniquely equipped by our perspective and where we live and where we've been raised to quest, call, call a question to that, that statement and to point out that in many ways, all of this propaganda that we're taught is mm-hmm. false. And specifically within the game, we, we have the history of 20 years of supplements talking about all the amalgams and constructs and so on in North America. So you may not like Narendra Modi's uh, policy towards Muslims in India or how China's treating the Uyghurs ethnic minority, but we don't have an example within White Wolf history of there being of that place being crawling with technocrats. So it's almost yeah. an object lesson of saying there were there were five thousand technocrats in North America and even they couldn't see this coming and stop it once it started. Right. And I have some listener questions if we may. Yeah. Oh yeah. The, these are questions that we collected from our Discord chat, uh Discord me slash mage the podcast if you'd like to join it's a hopping conversation yesterday we were arguing about the number of nipples that a crinos form werewolf has and right after that we were talking about the mechanics for having a demon take over a hit mark so if you want hard-hitting questions answered or discussed about the world of darkness join us discord.me slash mage the podcast and based on the look of on danielle's face danielle will not be joining our discord I, am- uh, I just I just want to say two and premium countermeasures would make that difficult. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna argue with at least I, I went with I'm five just on the art that I've seen over the last twenty years. Mm. But you're, you're having- sexualizing Krenos form. I'm not sexualizing Krenos <laughs> form. 
Ron Spencer the, sexualized Krinos. The artist that gave 16-year-old me who was still in the throes of puberty a Black Furies fetish is the one who sexualized Krinos Wolves have anywhere between between 10 to 12 nipples. Oh, I thought it was eight. That's how I came up with five, as halfway between two and eight. No, no. So ten, but anywhere between 10 to 12 nipples it, on, on wolves, on a gray wolf. We're going to, some wolf breeds, smaller, whatever. Most dogs you, have about 10 nipples. Your nipples so, may vary. Uh, like common. has 12, but, but a, a bonar might have seven. It's hard to know if you're not in full wolf form how much of your your human form, but you're you know are you going to develop the extra mammaries in Krenos is is not really a question I ever thought I would ever noodle in my brain, and now it's here. Huh? You learn something new every day. <laughs> Discord.me slash maids of the podcast, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but yes, we agreed that premium countermeasures would prevent a, uh, a a hit mark from easily becoming either a host or a reliquary. And with that, Lucid asks, did you do anything to try and future-proof the technology presented? Everything so far has gone out of date so quickly. What was it like to try and future-proof that? Or alternatively, how did you try and guess what the future was going to look like? Nah. No, no. <laughs> for my perspective was two things. One, I know there's some reluctance to embrace the sort of retro future Terminator aesthetic. I personally steered directly into that skid, Mm -hmm. particularly in the art notes. I promise you, you're going to see a good old fashioned cyber tooth tiger in this puppy. I'm for owning that. But secondly, I tried to, particularly in device design, instead of saying, what's this going to look like in the future? Saying, how do we make this futuristic thing or this mad techno magical thing look like we have now so like the uh, introduction of the es phone in this edition like and the idea that you have apparatus apps so like you can download a you know a memory altering app to your es phone and then you just flash your actual flash at someone because they're not about making it look futuristic they're about making it look like it fits you know what i'm saying so that was kind of the guiding star that i took but you know they yeah. may have perspective on no that. uh no future proofing is 90s aesthetic on technology is where it's at. But one of the things that you have to think about is, so yes, they're making advanced technology, they're making it, you know, amazing and wonderful, but they're also, like Travis said, they're not trying to make weird futuristic looking things that people will in like point at and go, man, that is super alien, right? That's not the point of, of what they're doing. They want their super futuristic device to look like any old normal device and have a futuristic effect. So in in that, the future proofing is, is that these devices are going to do an effect that seems magical in nature and, you know, advanced enough technology looks like magic. Okay. Mm -hmm. So maybe in 20 years, the things that we said are pretty much just magic will be a thing technology can do. Who knows? But Hopefully, you'll just use that thing to do something more advanced than that. And then there's the occasional cartoony aesthetic. Like, there's a device, for example, that basically is a portable hole. You, know, oh, you plug yeah. a pair of tacks into a wall and it cuts a pattern out. You know, that's just Looney Tunes fun. So, that was also an aesthetic choice that was made more than once in this book. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, there is a, a hint, and not a hint, but like a. a underlying theme that is a little bit humorous in the technocracy and always has been. It is not a self-aware humor. It is something that the reader observes. It is not something that the technocracy observes in itself because to do that would be unmutual. 
A similar question, Forger asks, do you have any guidelines on how to determine when a high-tech ability is vulgar versus coincidental or when it moves from coincidental to mundane? And has the technocracy done anything to moderate the pace of innovation? So, you know, we talked about terranorming previously. I think the answer is, you know, we, we don't necessarily, I don't think we give like hard guidelines on you know, does this magic look vulgar or is it coincidental or whatever? But, you know, as a general thing, I'd say that if you're in an area that has been described as highly terranormed, then your device that flashes and changes people's memories is probably going to look coincidental. It may be even mundane, where if you're out in rural Hicksville and you do that same thing, <laughs> that shit's vulgar. <laughs> like, so it's, it's, you know, as always situational. Well, and, and to piggyback off that a little bit, one of my personal sort of missions in this book was to delineate and homogenize the use of the terms adjustment and procedure mm-hmm. so that an adjustment is a coincidental act and a procedure is a vulgar act. So the idea being that what constitutes which of those will be determined by uh, the terra norming and may have direct effect on your paperwork that you're turning in later and and what levels of trouble you're getting into uh, because you know sometimes something that might be considered a an adjustment in a highly terra normed area would be a procedure somewhere else and if you don't have clearance to use that procedure you know it's a, there's a lot of paperwork involved that you narrate rather than actually do cuz doing that would not be fun oh my yeah God. <laughs> yeah. i played a game of technocracy it was nothing but filling out tps reports <laughs> <laughs> Next question we have, listener Renee asks, are there any social trends you feel the technocracy have been forced to respond to, maybe outside what we've talked to before? And do we get new rules for ionic cloth? (laughs) I mean, I think we cover a lot of the social trends. You know, we cover social media. We give a a little bit of talk to... The digital digital web. web. We give a little bit of talk to the digital web and how, you know, social media and stuff has made that a little, a little different. And we do talk about uh, certain high social media, the things that have turned to social trends like climate deny, you know, science deniers and climate change and things like that. You know, we do address all those kind of things that as things the technocracy absolutely must adapt to. I, I think we make a reference to like cryptocurrency some uh, at yeah, some point. So yep. yeah, so we so we we try to touch on some some things that are going on. I'm gonna let Travis ask answer about Ionic <laughs> directly. I don't think Ionic Cloth has its own breakout, but I do believe it's mentioned in the description of the second skin. And so I'll peel back the curtain a little bit for your listeners and give them a little bit of a little bit of uh, special knowledge about how the dis- the device section's broken out specifically because I'm really proud of it. Each piece of technocratic sort of stuff, be it a device, be it a matrix, regardless of what level it is, each one of them not only has the the function of the item described, but the actual spheres involved in the enlightened science behind it for a number of reasons, not the least of which is to give the players the ability to then, because they're playing enlightened scientists of the technocratic union, if they're in the field and they have these spheres, 
they have the know-how so that they can sort of jury-rig a solution out in the field if they have access to the right phlebotinum and handwavium to make it work. Uh, so now you can say, man, I don't have a laser watch, but I know how it works. So, you know, toss me this and that and this, and let's see if I can make a laser. Mm-hmm. That kind of sort of uh, permission slip, if as it were, for the enlightened science. So uh, we do discuss, I think in pretty good detail for the most part, kind of what things are made of and how they work mm-hmm. uh, and hearkening back to some of the earlier editions and talking about materials that maybe don't get like a direct breakout, but do get a mention. And there's a, there's a lot of stuff. A, it was already prepackaged full of it with, you know, from the stuff that uh, Satiros was working on, obviously, but I did my best to pepper in kind of, you know, the references to things that you might've only seen in, in, you know, not shown up since first edition, like the, uh, the Z aliens, I can't pronounce um, What's so hard yeah, about that? Jeez, it just rolls Obviously. off the tongue because you have to swallow yours. Um. Yeah, <laughs> and stuff like that. So really try to make sure that every every edition got a little time in the limelight and got some cool stuff. Yeah, and just an explainer to the audience, Ionocloth is a material that has appeared in various forms. Literally a new description in each edition of the game with slightly different rules, and it's kind of a, a bit of a recurring idea um, that you have this super material. It is the merino wool of the technocracy, is the way I like to put it, but uh, it doesn't smell as much. Not, not at all. Yeah. <laughs> Golgari Glenn Ross, great name, asks, how do you recommend people use the technocracy as an antagonist? You know, I think we've talked about that a lot. So at this point, I feel okay. like we've already answered this question, but sure. I will just quickly recap that, you know, the, the technocracy, one, they're they're flawed. They have a lot of problems with their methodology. They, they do things, you know, the ends justify the means, things like that. And they think they're right. And so, you know, when coming up against an extremist group with that kind of conviction, a whole slew of ability to be antagonists in a story that aren't necessarily strong villains so much as just antagonistic to what you're trying to do. As a counterpoint to that, though, I would just simply say bullets first. Yeah. Just have them open with bullets. That's how you use them as an antagonist. I was thinking yeah. PowerPoint bullets at first. I'm like, go on. And then you're like, oh, but, but Travis is making mention. Travis is making mention to the fact that as powerful as mages think they are, they are all vulnerable to the 10th sphere gun. That's why hit marks carry a big gun in their back as opposed to, you know, a reality warping transmog. Nope, just shoot them. Yep. (laughs) Ilan Rouge asks, what's your opinion of the College of Gender Studies and their prohibition on calling operatives men in black? We have all but excised the term men in black from technocracy reloaded. They are referred to almost entirely as black suits. Yeah. Almost the only gendered terms that are still in the book I thought were interesting were in the syndicate section and right near the section where they also note that the syndicate is known for the libidinous appetites. And (laughs) I'm like, that's, that's an interesting way to put that. (laughs) And and not to make too much hay on it, but um, we've talked a lot about the progressive changes that have, that have the union has undergone. And I would say the place that that is the least of the case is the syndicate. Yeah. yeah. Um, the syndicate is still very much beholden to, and I think that that's because of the culture, or the, the not culture, but the class separation. The mm-hmm. syndicate is still very much beholden to your one percenter sort of mindset, yeah. and that shows in almost every respect. 
One of the things the book does a great job of spelling out is the idea that uh, the technocrats are not unified in their degree of individual focus versus community focus and lays it out on a spectrum of saying on one end, you have the new world order and the iterators who understand the importance of the collective. On the other end, you have the progenitors and the syndicate who are all for the, the ubermensch, sometimes almost literally, and the void engineers are kind of in the middle. And that is something that I think I in, uh, intuitively knew throughout all of Mage, but it was just great to see it explained to me like, oh, everything makes sense now. Right. Um, I, don't, that, I don't know that it's ever been quite laid out like that. Yeah. And the last question we have is from Batjutsu that says, are there any carry-on or side projects for maybe the Storyteller's Vault or might be Kickstarter add-ons that represent material that maybe there wasn't space for in this book? Yes. Yeah, so we'll, hopefully there will be some stretch goals. Nice. And we can get a uh, technocracy (laughs) reloaded, reloaded. (laughs) Go back to Kickstarter so that I can publicly talk to you. Kickstarter so that we can (laughs) unlock those stretch goals. Yes, okay. and tell you all the awesome things that we would love to do as long as we have the uh, the, the support Money. to do. At PAX Unplugged, I picked up the Onyx Path Publishing uh, 2020 Prospectus. I don't know what that thing is actually called. Our catalog. Yeah, the catalog. They're like, these are the things that we're doing. And they're like, all the X20 lines books have been out, except for Mage. We still got a bunch more of those. Stay tuned. And I'm yeah. like, yeah, you may say that we're slow, but I think we're just enduring. Uh- yeah. <laughs> Do you have any special promotional plans for for this? This is the first large major release we've gotten in a while. Are you doing anything else uh, to pair with this that the audience might want to know about? So I have have two actual plays that are scheduled. I'll be doing a Technocracy Reloaded actual play with Red Moon Roleplaying, which I'm very excited about. Uh, They'll be released through their normal channels, through YouTube, and I believe they have a podcast that goes out through as well. But I'm also running a Technocracy Reloaded game on the Onyx Path Twist channel starting on the 5th. And Seder is going to be playing in it, which is only entirely intimidating for me. So, yeah, you know, I get to run Mage for the dude kind of responsible for its current state. But also, like, some of the authors that worked on Reloaded and uh, Hiromi is going to be on it. And Jacqueline Brick is going to be a player as well. Authors. Yeah. And so, and I have there's a couple of other, uh, T.K. Johnson, who did not work on it at all, mm. but uh, is awesome. Mm-hmm. Is going to be there, and then uh, it's their first time playing Mage, I think. Travis is also in charge of the Onyx Paths uh, Twitch channel. We'll also include a link to their weekly schedule. It's got an awesome uh, lineup of things. A number of friends of the podcast are are doing some pretty great shows, and that is constantly being revised and updated. So go there if you want to shove some more uh, Wode, O Wode, and Story Path into your RPG hole. And and Scarlet. Yes, and Scarlet. <laughs> Did we mention Scarlet? Uh, thank you so much for both of your time. Are there any projects you're working on that you want to point our listeners to, or maybe any closing thoughts that you had on working on this book or where we can find you if we're interested in your other work? So I am currently working on Trinity Continuum's Adventure, exclamation point, which is the 19... The first edition was set in the 1920s. We have actually moved the book uh, about 10 years in the future of that. So it's set in the 1930s so that punching Nazis is a a thing you can actively do in the book, in the game setting. Other than that, it is a pulp action adventure game set in the Trinity Continuums. The games that we made for Trinity Continuum are like working backwards in time so like aeon came out first and aeon is you know the far future and then aberrant which is our superhero game and it's kind of the near future and then adventure is the pulp 
set in the history and it's the third one to come out. And so I'm working on that right now. It's in development, like redline stage. So it's super early in its stages. I'm also working on a Scion book called Scion Dragon. And, and Travis, how about you? So Scardlands, Scardlands, Scardlands. Did I mention um, I'm working on some Scardlands stuff? <laughs> And then also some Scardlands. I would highly recommend uh, that if you've not yet done so, you uh, check out the Scardlands Player's Guide, first of all, definitely. But also uh, we have Vigil Watch and Yugman's Guide to Gelspad, both coming out in bi-monthly intervals in PDF over at DriveThruRPG, kind of expanding the setting. Uh, we also do have a larger book in the works called Dead Man's Rust that I'm looking forward to sharing probably later in the year early next year and i have been very fortunate to also be able to work on adventure danielle in a much less of a capacity on that book than i was on technology i'm just a just a humble lowly little writer on that <laughs> also some other uh, trinity continuum stuff i've been doing some writing on which has been very exciting i'm not 100 percent sure what has and has not been announced for trinity continuum so i'm just going to keep my mouth shut as yeah, to what I've been writing of, yeah, I'm working on. Yeah, I've been working on a lot of stuff for Trinity Continuum as well, and there's stuff I can't talk about, although I will share this fun anecdote, which is that uh, I got asked to develop a bunch of stuff for Aberrant, the stretch goals and stuff like that that got funded. And I was like, yeah, I can develop that and that, but you know, the jumpstart, like, I can't develop all three of these things because that's too many things. And so they asked Travis to develop the the aberrant jumpstart who then turned around and asked me to write it and i was like yeah i guess so (laughs) (laughs) and links to any of these projects that have already gone out are going to be available on our show notes when you click on our drive through rpg link we get a small portion of the sales and that helps keep us going and with that you've been listening to mates the podcast you can subscribe to our show on spotify anchor TuneIn, itunes google play podcasts or the podcatcher of your choice If you do, you'll get a toasty new episode each and every week. Our audience grows through personal recommendations, so if you know someone who'd like it, pass it on, or leave us a review on iTunes. Every bit helps. We have a hop in Discord community at discord.me slash madesthepodcast, and you can also give us your thoughts and feedback over email at madesthepodcast at gmail.com or on Twitter at madesthepodcast. This episode is made possible from the support of our executive producers, and they are John Oracle Magnuson, Justin, the Nefondi Puncher, Anders, who is unconquered by Paradox, Michael, Marauder Stopper Parker, and Richard, Bat, more like Kamazot's Brewster. Thank you. If you'd like to support us and get a cool color in Discord and have me make up a fake nickname for you, go to magethepodcast.com and click on Become a Sponsor. Also, go to Mage the Podcast for show notes and all our previous shows. If you're listening to this on or after Tuesday, April 28th, go support the Kickstarter for Technocracy Reloaded. And if you get the super cool, I get to be the cover model, Backer level before me, I will totally fight you for it. Politely. Bye.